Hi everyone, I'm Sewan. I'm Akash, and this is Now What? We're two Harvard College students trying to make sense of this post-corona reality. As we students deal with the unfortunate reality of attending online classes, losing internships and job offers, and social distancing, our future looks increasingly uncertain. Our hope is that each episode on the podcast features experts from a variety of fields who offer clarity, breaking down the current events shaping our world, and sharing advice uniquely tailored to our generation. Okay, so today we're joined by my professor, Nathan Hendren. He is a professor of economics at Harvard and the founding co-director of Opportunity Insights. And his work is motivated by the question, do markets provide equal opportunity? His work seeks to understand when and why markets fail to provide opportunity, quantify the impact of those market failures, and provide tools to normatively evaluate potential policy solutions. Thank you so much for joining us today, Professor. So your team at Opportunity Insights has been building this real-time economic tracker for looking at the recovery from COVID-19. Could you tell us a little bit more about the motivations for your work? Yeah. Sure. So um, I think like all of us, you know, COVID came along and uh, the world sort of changed. Um, everything uh, kind of went into a bit of a lockdown and there was a natural sort of question of what is going to happen both to health, but also to the economy. And as an economist, our kind of natural comparative advantage in that set of questions is more on the economic side. And so we as a team sort of came together and said, okay, well, what can we do to try to contribute to our understanding of what is going on in the economy? And the most um, kind of immediate reaction we all had is that, well, the traditional sources of data that you use to understand what's going on in the economy is generally at a very long lagged frequency. Um, you know, I personally have used a lot of census and tax information in my research, which comes at annual frequencies. Um, others sometimes, you know, can use quarterly data, et cetera. But, you know, if you are a locality deciding, you know, what is the trade-off I face when deciding to open restaurants? Um, you're interested in weekly information. You're not interested in yearly information. And so um, the reality is that much of that information is held by people in the private sector. It is the transactions that we make on a daily basis. And in the world we live in now, where so much of that activity is monitored or is, is done electronically, you have electronic records of that activity that you can use to form measures of changes in the economy at a high frequency. So we reached out to parties that had this information that were effectively involved in the aggregation of that information or in the transactions that are occurring and worked with them. They were, you know, I think everybody was in a, in a spirit of kind of a, a spirit core to try to come together to say, what can we do? And so we um, worked with them to form aggregated and anonymized versions of those statistics that shed light on the spending patterns of people in different places uh, over time, um, of different backgrounds and different industries to try to understand what's going on in the economy. And so it was really a realization that the traditional way that we measure the economy was not sufficient to provide the kind of policy guidance that you would want uh, in response to the COVID crisis. Mm -hmm. And so you mentioned how this tool can be leveraged uh, to sort of gain insight into 
um, you know, like providing, uh, you know, advice to cities, townships, et cetera, on how they should go about reopening. And so um, I'm actually from the New Jersey area. And so the raging controversy around me is New York City's um, sort of initiated its uh, reopening stages. And um, as New York City kicks off sort of, you know, like phase two of its reopening, uh, which, for example, enables offices to operate at 50% of the maximum occupancy. What do you think New York City should prioritize most? And sort of given how divided people are on this, with some saying that yeah. they're not opening fast enough, others saying that they're opening too fast, um, where do you yeah. fall in that spectrum? My view is that policy should focus on the, the health crisis. All of our evidence to this point on the impact, uh, you know, I, I just take today. The stock market crashed by like 750 points. Why did it crash? I mean, come on, we never, we always joke that we can never understand why the stock market crashed, but the stock market crashed today because COVID cases are, uh, are going through the roof, right? Mm-hmm. And the virus is the problem here. And so fighting the virus is the same thing as promoting the impact on the economy. And I think in many ways, the ideas of the public health experts, the ideas of people that know how to best contain the virus are the ideas that are best promoting economic activity. Because the problem is right now, you know, if you open a restaurant, that restaurant is not necessarily safe. <laughs> it might be safe for you, if, even if you get sick, but you might end, end up infecting somebody else who's, who's not safe. Um, and so I think this effect, uh, I, I think, just makes the economic impact and the economic decision to align with the uh, kind of health policy decision. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I'm, you, you know, I'm pretty much not an expert on the, you know, what is the best way to uh, shut down sectors of the economy to prevent the spread of the virus. But I think the quantity of the magnitude of these so-called externalities are so large that just fighting the virus seems like to first order the best thing to do. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Um, and you honestly, you would imagine that that's like everyone's first response, like sort of the way that it was in Asia too, was like, let's get the virus out of here and then reopen all the restaurants. But it's weird that it's not that at all in the US. No, I mean, it became a political issue on whether or not you should even wear a mask. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, good grief. It's pretty mind boggling. Yes. Um, <laughs> and like, actually kind of along those lines with the political issue, you also mentioned the stock market and that's been something that, you know, like the Trump administration, for instance, has been parading around sort of like the massive rallies in the stock market. Um, and so, you know, like you mentioned, like oftentimes there's this sort of perception of the stock market as being this sort of nebulous thing that you can't really quite sort of pinpoint as to why it's changing and whatnot. But it yeah. seems to be quite heavily impacted by sort of the sort of COVID-19 news when, you know, there's like a good piece of news that comes out saying that things are flattening or whatnot, it'll rally and sort of, and when places like Arizona and all now are going a little bit uh, haywire, it seems to be taking a bit of a dip. Um, Like how pertinent or how significant do you think the stock market can actually be as a sort of gauge of economic Mm -hmm. well-being, but particularly in the context of this pandemic? Do you think that there is validity to sort of parading around like this, the sort of spikes and the dips? Well, in many ways, um, the stock market is a poor measure of economic well-being. It measures the present discounted value of profits, not the well-being of the workers in those companies that create those profits, right? In some sense, there's a natural trade-off between the two. In the context of settings where we're asking 
companies and people to completely stop working, um, I think those things become aligned in ways that they don't traditionally become aligned. Um, and so I think in this, uh, in this crisis, yeah, I do think the stock market has some, uh, has some predictive content for, uh, what we think the, econ uh, the economic well-being of many people, uh, are as a result of this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you. Um, sort of going more deeply into your paper and like the work that you've been doing more recently. Um, like I think the biggest takeaway for us when we looked at your work was, talking about like the importance of consumer spending to economic activity and how, you know, after the coronavirus happened, the lack of spending by like the wealthiest Americans was really something that impacted a lot of the economy, especially with lower income workers in those affluent neighborhoods. Um, mm -hmm. So we sort of just wanted to ask you a little bit more in depth about that finding and why you sort of think that higher income households aren't spending more and also obviously how the government can better encourage that spending. Yeah, I mean, I'll be honest, I think the best way to encourage that spending is to uh, fight the virus. Uh, because I think at the end of the day, mm -hmm. the reason people aren't spending is because they're uh, not able to do the things that they like to do that generally involve individual contact. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and I think when you can't have that, you shut down sectors of the economy. Now, I think the thing that we've pointed out in our work is that the people who spend the most in individual contact type activities are, uh, are the rich. They're already spending, that they spend a good portion of their income on services. Everybody's still paying their rent, everybody's still, you know, if they can, or everybody's still paying their mortgage, but the discretionary spending, um, much of that is in-person uh, service activity. And that is shut down as a result of the virus. So um, I think that's sort of the fundamental friction that is, hit the economy. And I think you see that even with the stimulus. So the government implemented this stimulus that went pretty decently high up in the income distribution. Um, but what you see is that it, it's not re, uh, kind of replacing the hole in spending um, that you that uh, uh, is kind of the result of the virus. You know, nobody's taking their stimulus check and saying, great, I'm going to go to a restaurant. Like it's just not the, uh, the kind of thing that people are doing with that. And so the types of policies that are important to implement in those types of settings are uh, things like unemployment insurance, the kind of massive in, uh, unemployment insurance expansion that we have had is incredibly valuable. Um, and I, I hope it gets extended uh, and I hope it uh, uh, kind of is sustained. I think the pushes on stimulus, I personally do not, uh, was not a, a big fan of the the stimulus payments as a kind of, you know, if you're going to give stimulus at any point in time, it's not clear that that point in time was the right point in time because people couldn't go out and spend in the ways that would fill the holes that we were feeling in the economy. The holes are driven by the virus, not because of a lack of aggregate demand. Um, right. So there may come a time for stimulus, but I think the time right now is to compensate the people who we have asked as a society to not work in order to prevent the spread of the virus. And I think that's the fundamental focus of public policy should be to compensate those people for taking that, uh, uh, taking that action to prevent the spread of the virus. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know like a lot of that massive, you know, trillion dollar worth stimulus uh, was pumped towards, um, you know, kind of the consumers in the sense of handing them $1,200 checks, but there's obviously the whole 
um, sort of you know, like pervasive concern as to, well, people can't really go out and actually spend that money because they're so afraid of even leaving their houses and sort of exiting mm -hmm. mode. Um, I know there also was money that was geared towards, um, you know, sort of building up the medical infrastructure, helping hospitals, mm -hmm. all of that. So do you think that there, there sort of should have been far more money um, geared towards the latter cause, towards sort of the medical facilities and sort of helping sort of actually directly battle the virus? And should they have sort of kind of shelved the consumer stimulus until maybe a couple months in once things got yeah. quieter? I think one of the greatest failures of this administration and of public policy in the era of COVID is the lack of uh, investment in testing and uh, in contact tracing. You could have imagined that back in January, uh, um, we did sort of a Manhattan Project style investment in home testing kits. And by the time, you know, we're six months, you know, we're maybe not six months, where are we? Yeah, we're six months later. Uh, six months, I bet we could have developed, you know, like the way in which we have home test kits for, you know, your blood sugar. Um, why couldn't we divest, uh, couldn't, couldn't we develop home test kits for, for COVID with a, a massive trillion dollar investment? If we had it, you could imagine a completely alternative universe where everybody wakes up in the morning, you take a test. If you're clean, you go to work. If you're not, you stay home. That takes our lesson one. That prevents the, the spread of the virus and it just dies out and it's over. I mean, it's, some people would still, you know, uh, uh, get the virus and you'd have a bit of a spread, but it completely removes the contagion that is what we're experiencing right now. And I think the lack of ex-ante preparation um, and the lack of coherent focus uh, on testing, I mean, you, we're dealing with an administration that actively discourages testing. <laughs> it's just absolutely crazy. Um, and I think it's just incredibly disappointing, disappointing. And I think when people look back on it, I think the way in which we have approached testing as a country, um, will hopefully be, uh, kind of viewed as sort of the greatest failure so that we can not do this again. And then would you say sort of with regards to, um, how the news has sort of covered the pandemic, um, obviously, you know, the pandemic sort of hit every single headline for the past, you know five, six months or whatever. Um, so do, like, is there anything that I guess, like, you know, like obviously the news focuses immensely on, you know, like the employment rate and on sort of consumer behavior and on sort yeah. of largely consumer facing issues that impact like the usual audience. But do you think that the news should have focused a bit more on other issues? Like, you know, for instance, um, encouraging that kind of medical re, um, sort of investment or, um, like what exactly do you think like the sort of general narrative, like how should that shift in order to, I guess, catalyze the most meaningful, um, reform that could be made? Oh, I guess I'm more nostalgic for the idea that there is something such as the news. Um, <laughs> um, and I'll leave it at that. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I think there's unfortunately the response to the pandemic in the country has sort of been very politicized. Right. Um, and, and I think that's, that's hindered the ability to get the virus under control in this country. Um, and it contrasts with many other countries. 
Um, I do think part of the spread the U.S. is experiencing right now is just the fact that we're geographically dispersed and the spread is moving more slowly across the geographies. So I think the comparison isn't entirely fair when you do it to other countries that aren't as mm-hmm. geographically dispersed. I think that generates a natural longer tail. But I continue to think that the the response of kind of the idea that it's sort of political on whether or not you wear a mask is incredibly problematic. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, well, thank you. Um, so we sort of wanted to shift gears a little bit. Um, sure. Our podcast and the art sort of value prop in our heads was that we want to sort of give people like us the information that we would have hoped to have. Um, and so obviously, like, we are reading the news, we're like reading articles, we're trying to make sense of the world ourselves as well. But I think a big question a lot of people our age have is that, you know, as somebody who's like 20 something living from home, like not being able to like leave the house, sort of, is there anything that we can do, do you think, as college students, both like immediately and in the long term, to sort of help with these bad policies or the fact that, you know, stimulus payments and and these policy designs have not been effective in the way that they should be. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's a really tough question. I think there's many, many models of social change and how to interact, uh, how to put yourself into models of social change. What I would say is I personally think the most effective models of social change are ones in which when you interact with a given person, you always try to meet that person where they're at and recognize that many people are coming with a very different set of perspectives than you. And always starting not with the perspective of, I'm gonna inform you, hey, you know, hey idiot, it's okay to wear a mask, but first understand where they're coming from and where they, like what is that prior that leads them to believe that that mask is not, is something that is political as opposed to to health-based. And I think often you can get so frustrated um, with, uh, uh, with those kinds of, of chasms and sort of views of what is uh, sort of appropriate to do in, in the world. And I guess my advice would be to people who are interested in, in implementing change is to recognize that just espousing your views is never going to really be effective. Mm-hmm. It's really more about understanding other people's views that allows you to be effective. Um, and that's you know my opinion. I think some people have different uh, different opinions and different models of social change, um, but I do think that is one that uh, can be uh, uh, can be fruitful. So in this instance, I think it is it is valuable to sort of be a uh, an advocate for the things you believe in, um, but take the time when you interact with people who have different beliefs to have the discussion about where they're coming from. Um, and force yourself to make the argument uh, to somebody who has very different priors than you. Um, yeah, no, I think that, that that makes a lot of sense. I think even when we look at like Instagram or like Facebook, just like the social media sort of like <laughs> activism that's been going on these days, um, there yeah. are a lot of people that'll post things saying like, oh, like basically in short, you idiot, why aren't you wearing a mask? Um, yeah. And when I think about that, it's like, people who actually don't want to wear a mask or think that it's fine to just go outside without one, like reading that is not going to make them feel any different. If anything, it'll make them matter. And when people, you know, who uh, have sort of the under the understanding that the mask is helpful, 
um, try to convey that to people that don't. <clears throat> Oftentimes there's differences in privilege between the two people. Coming at somebody with a, hey, the, what you are doing is uh, you know, just flat wrong without trying to understand why they're doing what they're doing is not, a, uh, not always going to be an effective way of trying to implement change. Yeah. Yeah, now, sometimes it can be, but I, I think in many cases it's useful to understand the other perspectives. Yeah, I think it's also like a great point that you brought up as to how there are these drastically different experiences that come into play. Because I think I was reading a piece, maybe it's the New Yorker or something like that, but um, it was just this profile of a bunch of people who, as soon as coronavirus hit, they still wanted to go to work and they weren't particularly concerned with wearing masks. But in large part, there was this motivation that they needed to make ends meet somehow. So they were willing to take that risk of going out, you know, without a mask and potentially, you know, um, getting exposed to coronavirus. But if that meant still having a job and still having money flow into the household, I mean, that was worth it. Which I guess, like, when you take those things into consideration, then it obviously starts to make a bit more sense. And the whole, you know, idiot wear a mask type of thing might, um, you know, start dissolving a little bit. Yeah, and if you step back and think about it, the odds, <clears throat> I think it is actually true at the individual level, the odds that you get the virus and that you die of the virus as a result of not wearing the mask is probably low. But because R is greater than one, the odds that if you get the virus, you might live, but you're going to pass it to more than one person who's going to pass it to more than one person who's going to pass it to more than one person. That's the problem, mm -hmm. right? And so we're trying to solve an externality problem by implementing a social norm. Right. And I think we're asking people to see through to, to like internalize the externality, so to speak. And I think it's always important to step back and recognize that that's asking a lot of people. And especially when it comes from people who, uh, who might have kind of, you know, greater means in their, in their lives relative to people that have lesser means in their lives, like what you were able to think about and, and try to deal with on a daily basis. There's a large body of evidence suggesting that, you know, the horizons are shorter, the, ways in which you incorporate um, information into those decisions becomes different. And I think understanding those differences when you try to think about how to uh, uh, enact kind of social change is important because if you don't think about the perspectives that people are bringing to the table, the types of decisions that they're trying to deal with on a daily basis, and you just have the perspective of, hey, idiot, you're not wearing a mask. It's a little bit tougher, I think, to, to actually uh, implement the, uh, the changes. Yeah, for sure. I, I think that's a really interesting way that you put it with regards to internalizing the externality of sorts. Because yeah. as you mentioned, obviously, if any of us kind of went and got coronavirus, the chances that we actually die from it are quite small. But passing it on and having that domino effect play out, so it just exacerbates the whole thing. I think that's where the real danger lies. And it's probably pretty tough to drive that in sort of people's minds that, hey, look, it's like, yeah, you probably might survive. And a lot of people who are saying, look, I'm still living and I've probably encountered someone with it. That's true. But the whole idea of, you know, casting this wide net and, you know, circulating it so extensively, I think that's really where, you know, coronavirus's real threat emanates. And I think that sort of ties into, you were mentioning earlier, um, how like the administration definitely could have responded in a more effective manner. For instance, maybe, you know, pumping in money into research, um, to figure out if we could have sort of kits at home, um, trying to bolster the testing and whatnot. Um, is there anything that I, I guess, you know, for uh, so many, you know, students who are watching this whole thing go down and might aspire to, you know, kind of play a role in policymaking one day or kind of are just interested in sort of general as to sort of how policymaking works in the country. Is there anything that sort of 
are, are there any key takeaways from sort of how the country's handled this pandemic that, you know, we could sort of learn from and, you know, if uh, there's ever another sort of outbreak like this that we can maybe apply those lessons in the future? Yeah, I, I think if this has highlighted anything, it's the value of competence in government. And I think for anybody who has an interest in contributing to their government and to the social good, um, go for it. Uh, don't give up on government as a result of failures that government has made. Um, I think there's an, a lot of incredible folks in government. Um, I think there's an incredible set of failures that um, have occurred in the course of the last uh, two years. And so, yeah, my main piece of advice is to not give up on politics. Now, for those who are not directly interested in politics, I mean, politics reacts to public uh, and to uh, public reaction on things to some extent. And so there's many ways to actually influence policy, um, both directly and, uh, and indirectly. Um, but I, I, I guess my main message would be to not just give up on the government as being ineffective. I think that logic has been in some ways what has contributed to uh, ineffectiveness in government. Um, when it becomes perceived as ineffective, yeah. it, it, it gets uh, uh, kind of more and more disinvested and, and uh, 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 it, it becomes harder to attract folks who were uh, uh, interested in, 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 in really kind of uh, uh, creating a, a government of excellence. And I think, um, it would be, uh, it'd be wonderful right now if we had, um, you know, a set of coherent plans that had been outlined back in January. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, you might not be able to answer this, but I, this is just something that has been on my mind. Like, what, do you think there's something about like America or like the American government or the way policy is in the U S that like makes it so hard to internalize this externality or to have like an efficient sort of plan of action to this collective problem? Because, I mean, I mean, I yeah. <laughs> I think there's two things. One, there's a culture, and two, there's a system. The system is federalism, uh, as you've seen with the coronavirus. Like the states are making all the calls here. The federal government is in many has in many ways just has no power here. Um, you know, Governor Cuomo has more power than Trump in many ways on uh, uh, kind of what's going on with uh, with coronavirus. Um, I think the culture question i i think it's just it's just true that there's sort of this kind of independence and fierce independent um culture that can come out uh in the united states um you know it's i i think it's uh probably related a bit to the uh the uh uh kind of the the culture that has been noted associated with kind of the NRA and others and, and a culture that frankly, like I, I, I in many ways grew up with in, in kind of rural Minnesota. And I, and I actually think there's many uh, wonderful aspects to, uh, to that kind of uh, let's get it done and, and do it independently kind of type type culture. Is there anything that you sort of have predicted or what you sort of think about how the job market will change? I think again, for people our age, like that's a huge point of concern just you know, obviously the immediate, like what's going to happen to my internship or my postgrad plans, but also just, you know, does this change like the fundamental structure of the economy or the labor force? I'm just sort of curious about your thoughts on that and how the world might change in that way for us. Yeah. So yes, (laughs) I think 
going forward, there's going to be more Zoom meetings, uh, like the Zoom meeting we are doing right now. <laughs> I, I think the kind of longer run question is to what extent will, um, you know, there's a lot well-documented pattern that graduating <clears throat> in a recession uh, lowers your lifetime earnings. So, um, sorry. Uh, <laughs> sorry about that one. Uh, yeah, sorry to be the, uh, the Debbie Downer, so to speak, but uh, that, that is historically quite true. I think the thing that this one is, that's a little bit different about this one, is, you know, as we talked about with the, the start, you know, the stock market hasn't tanked as much as it has in, in past recessions, for example. And I think the, the labor market has certainly tanked more than one would generally expect, but the recall rates are quite high. A lot of people are going to go back to their same jobs, uh, hopefully, once this is over. When you look at job posting rates, job posting rates have not declined nearly as much as the increase uh, in unemployment insurance uh, claims or in unemployment rates. And so what that means is that the forward-looking measures of the economy seem to be strong. Um, now, we can debate about how, you know, whether or not those will actually be, be realized. So I think you know, relative to uh, coming out in the Great Recession, I actually think things are in a better position. Um, I think, though, they are going to be in a different position in that many of these interviews are occurring over uh, you know, video conferencing and the structure of work, I think, will be different um, going forward. I think a lot of people are going to um, you know, be calling into the meeting as opposed to coming into the office uh, more days out of the week going forward. I think this is going to um, change that. Uh, flip side is I think we're all starting to value uh, how much we miss uh, in-person contact. So we'll mm -hmm. see if we revert to the old equilibrium. But I would, I would guess that we're going to end up with more uh, online communications going forward, to be honest. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it's probably music sort of to the ears of a lot of the, you know, like environmentalists just kind of hearing that. They're like, you know, for instance, if you had like an international meeting and you would just fly for that meeting and fly back, well, you might not need to incur that expense and more importantly, leave that kind of carbon footprint. You could just do it over Zoom. And I imagine that'll probably start gaining a bit more traction as people have been doing that out of compulsion and realize, you know, hey, it actually kind of works. I mean, Greta's been yeah. real quiet these days. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I have airplanes. I live de you know, decently close to the airport. I have airplanes that go overhead and it's always really annoying in the summer. Like the airplanes come over every 30 seconds and it's like, wow, I get like five minute breaks in between airplanes. <laughs> it's wonderful. Silver <laughs> linings. <laughs> oh, man. But yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. And that makes a lot of sense. I think I think we're all just sort of looking at what's happening and trying to make sense of what's been going on. But it's been really helpful to have somebody who like understands it to a much deeper level to talk about. Yeah. It. So we appreciate that. And if you <laughs> I, I don't know if I understand it to a deep level. Uh, 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 we're all certainly living it. And it's, it's kind of crazy to, to really think through what's going on. Um, but it is, you know, from an economic standpoint, fun, uh, uh, fun is not the right word, but it is uh, stimulating <laughs> to think through what is actually going on. Uh, going on. Um, and uh, I, I think uh, for those that are interested in these kinds of issues, there's just a wealth of data and knowledge that is going to be generated in the, uh, in the months and years ahead. So uh, to anybody who's interested, um, uh, dive in.